You can turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We're committed at Grace Community Church to expository preaching. Um, so not pastors coming up with good ideas and things that need to be said and then finding scripture that supports it. But rather, starting with the text. This is the text of scripture we're in. What does it mean and what does God want to say to us through it? So we're committed to that and we've been coming through the gospel of Matthew together. And right now we're in Matthew chapter 19. Starting in verse 27, and we're going to see if we can make it all the way to chapter 20, verse 16 today. And uh, this passage is connected. We're not just trying to make it as far as we can go. Hopefully I'll be able to show you that in just a minute. That chapter 19, verse 27, runs over into chapter 20 all the way uh, to verse 16. So let's pray and we'll dig in together. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, we need your help. We know we need your help, Lord, to understand it. To understand even just the plain sense of it, Lord. But even beyond that, Lord, to see the glory that you reveal in it and have hearts that are submissive and longing to obey. So God, we need your help. And God, we ask you, please, that you would pour out your grace this morning. God, pour out your grace on the preaching of your word and on every ear, every heart that hears it. Lord, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a question. Um, do you want God to deal with you on the basis of merit or on the basis of grace? And maybe just to define what I mean there, by the basis of merit, I mean I do well, God rewards me. I do bad, God punishes. If you act right, you get rewarded. If you don't act right, you get punished. That's the basis of merit. Uh, you earning your reward or not earning your reward. But when I say on the basis of grace, I mean, uh, I mean unmerited favor from God. This is, you know, grace, the goodness of God poured out on the undeserving, even the ill-deserving. I know, I know a lot of you probably love that little you know, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. So God's riches poured out. Not because I earned that, but, but Christ earned it at his expense. So, unmerited favor. Um, so, do you want God to deal with you on the basis of merit, works, uh, what's fair, or do you want God to deal with you on the basis of grace? You can answer that. Grace, okay. I thought so. Now, it's a popular thing to want to deal with God on the basis of merit, although no one would say it in the Sunday morning church gathering, right? But it's a popular thing in our world, and it's a, it's a very common thing in the human heart 
to want to deal with God on the basis of merit. Now, why would somebody want to do that? Why would somebody be okay with dealing with, with coming to God on this principle of, of merit, of works? I just want what's fair. Why would somebody do that? And I really, really want you to make this connection. It's spiritual pride. It really is spiritual pride at the root of somebody that would desire for God to deal with them on the basis of merit. Because you know what? They really think they meet the standard. They really think they can be good enough to earn God's favor. And so that spiritual pride, and don't miss that connection, is at the root of wanting to deal with God on the basis of works, on the basis of, of merit. Now, the passage we're in, as I said, chapter 19, verse 27, all the way to chapter 20, verse 16, the background of this passage is flowing out of the rich young ruler passage. So if y'all remember a couple weeks back, we were in the passage about the rich young ruler. And what did we see there? We saw a man that wanted to deal with God on the basis of merit. Do you remember what he said? Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? What good thing can I do to have eternal life? He's wanting to deal with God. I do good, you reward it on the basis of merit. Now, why was he able to desire that? Because of his pride, his spiritual pride. You remember when Jesus, he lays out the commandments for him, which are supposed to humble him. They're supposed to make him go, man, I haven't met that standard. Instead, Jesus lays out the commandments, and what's his response? All those things I've kept from my youth. I've obeyed all that. That's spiritual pride that produces a man that wants to deal with God on the basis of merit. So you remember what Jesus did? Jesus humbles that man and the rich young ruler walks away sad. He chooses riches and possessions over Jesus. He walks away from Christ. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he begins to teach them a humbling lesson. And it's a lesson about merit-based salvation versus grace Based salvation. Okay? And you remember what he said? He said, Man, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. How hard is it? It's impossible. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. And they, they're just shocked. They say, Man, then how can someone be saved? How can anyone be saved? And here it is Jesus says, With man, it's impossible. Merit-based salvation is a myth. With man, how can, how can you be saved then? With man, it's impossible. You can't earn your way. You're not good enough. But then he says, but with God, all things are possible. By the grace of God, all things are possible. And so hopefully, you hope that the disciples see it clearly. Okay, salvation is by grace and grace alone. It's by grace, the grace of God. That's how a man is saved. Not by his own works, not by earning it. Hopefully they see that. That that merit-based pursuit of salvation actually condemns someone to hell. Like the rich young ruler. And hopefully they see that. Now here's something I want you to think about. You might agree with that. And the disciples might have agreed with that the moment they heard it. With man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. They agreed with it. And yet this, this merit-based thinking, this rooted in spiritual pride, man, it can seep into Christian thinking, can it? It can seep into the Christian heart, to the Christian life. 
And you see that in a lot of different ways. And the first thing I thought about was, was in marriage, right? A lot of you probably experienced this, that we want God to deal with us on the basis of grace. That, that although I don't deserve it, although I deserve nothing but wrath and judgment from God, He pours out goodness and favor and grace through Jesus Christ. We want God to deal with us like that. And then we turn to our spouse and it's, if she acts right, then I'll treat her right. But if she does me wrong, I do her wrong. So we revert back to that merit-based thing toward our spouse, whereas we want God to deal with us on the basis of unmerited favor. So it tends to seep into the Christian life. Uh, one way, and we're going to see this in our passage, of a way it seeps into the Christian life is in the church or amongst, amongst disciples of Jesus, spiritual pride that affects our relationships. Spiritual pride that affects our relationships. Think about that. Instead of the humility of somebody that just says, man, I'm a recipient of grace. Everything I have is from the grace of God. And it tends to flatten things out. And it drops that pride and it, and it affects the way you deal with each other in love. Because, man, anything I got that's good is from His grace. Right? But instead of that, spiritual pride produces this pursuit of superiority over one another this chasing after recognition I'm better than them or I desire to be better than them or I deserve better than them that's the mindset and maybe you never say that sort of thing but to fill it in your heart is just as dangerous and here's the thing grace thinking kills that stuff when you realize that your salvation and everything about you good is only by the grace of God, man, it kills that mindset of, I want to be first. I want to be above my brother. I'm superior to him. It kills it. And I'm mentioning this for this reason. Because what we see in this passage today is sitting right in the middle of some problems we see with Jesus' disciples. We see Jesus' disciples struggling with this merit-based mindset rooted in spiritual pride that causes them to have this sinful competition with each other. We saw it back in Matthew 18.1. Do you remember that? Matthew 18.1. Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And they're arguing and bickering over which one of them is best, which one of them is greatest. If you fast forward a little bit, we'll get here in the next couple of weeks, I mean, it's coming up soon. It's almost like our passage today is a preemptive strike on what's coming in chapter 20, verse 20. Because in that passage, they're still doing that. Can, I sit at your, can we sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom? Can we be better than our brethren? Can we be the greatest in the kingdom? And then when Jesus answers them, the other disciples are angry because they ask Jesus this kind of stuff. Just bickering over superiority and recognition. Desiring to be better than the one next to them and this is the kind of mindset so i want you to think about that the passage we're in today before it and after it that's the mindset we see in the disciples chasing recognition chasing superiority i want to be first and it's rooted in spiritual pride and the merit-based mindset that says i can earn that from god i can earn that top spot from the lord what our passage today does is, it is, if I had to summarize it, it tells us this, that God deals with his people on the basis of grace 
And so there's no room for spiritual pride. God deals with his people on the basis of grace. And so there's no room for spiritual pride. And just to break it down real quick, verse 27, we're going to see Peter's question. He asks a question in response to the rich young ruler stuff. And then the next verse, verse 28, all the way to chapter 20, verse 16 is Jesus' answer. So we've got the question in verse 27 and Jesus' answer all the way after that, all the way up to verse, chapter 20, verse 16. So let's read Peter's question. Look at verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? That's Peter's question. Jesus answers all the disciples. So he's speaking as a a representative of all the disciples there, all the twelve We've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? That's the question. Now, Peter claims that they had left everything to follow Christ. And that's actually true. You could go read about that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22, and a few other places where it literally says that. They laid it all outside. They, They left everything to follow Christ. Now, that's a mark. That's a a mark of true Christian conversion, to leave it all for Christ. Jesus said, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says that the one who finds his life will actually lose it. But the one that loses his life for his sake will actually find it. Lose your life for Christ. That's a mark of the true Christian life. Uh, I read this thing in a commentary with Charles Spurgeon. He called Christians uh, glad losers for Jesus. I thought that was a cool phrase. Losers for Jesus. They lose all for Christ. And they're glad losers for Jesus. Why? Man, they gladly lay it all aside for Christ. That's true Christian conversion. So they had left all to follow Jesus. That's what Peter said. It's true. If you contrast that with the rich young ruler they just heard, the rich young ruler was unwilling to do that. He he clung to his riches. He clung clung to his stuff and chose his possessions over Christ. So it's true. We've left everything to follow you. And then he asked the question, what then will we have? And it's not hard to understand, right? That's pretty clear. Okay, Jesus, uh, we've left all to follow you. What will we receive? What are we going to receive for this? What are, what are we going to have? That's easy to understand. What's not as easy to understand is what's the motivation for that question? Why is he asking that question? What's his motive in asking, what then will we have? And I want to uh, you know, just put this before you. I believe that there's a mixed motivation in Peter and probably even all the disciples, as, they, as this question is asked. There's mixed motivation here. There's a good motive and a bad motive. There's an innocent, you know, there's some innocence in this, and there's some corruption in this. Now, the, innocence, uh, the innocent side would be this. They just heard Jesus say to the rich young ruler, go sell all you have, give to the poor, come follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. So the innocent, curious side is, We've left all. What do we have? What treasure do we have 
in heaven. I believe that's the good side of it. I believe the corrupt side of this is, is there's some, there's some uh, merit-based pride in that question. There's, what have we earned by what we've done, Jesus? There's some sinful competition. What are we going to have? Like we see in chapter 18. Like we see you know, on a little bit in chapter 20. What are we going to have? This merit-based, spiritual pride, sinful competition. And you see it coming out in this question, right? So, think about it like that. What then will we have? We've not been like this rich young ruler. We've left everything to follow you. So what are we going to have for our superior efforts? What will we have for our superior efforts? Right? Now, one of the reasons I believe that there's mixed motivation in Peter's question is because Jesus gives a mixed answer. He does. You start in the next verse, verse 28. And the first part of Jesus' answer, which is verse 28 and 29, Jesus gives some affirmation of their reward. What are we going to have? And Jesus affirms, here's what you're going to have. So there's some affirmation there. So, so that's a part of his response. But then the second part of Jesus' response, from 19, verse 30, all the way to chapter 20, verse 16, that second part of his response is a, is, is a warning. It's a lesson being given that really stands as a warning. So Jesus gives this mixed answer, this affirmation on the one hand of what you're going to receive, what you're going to have. And on the other hand, there's this warning attached to that question. So Jesus' mixed answer helps me see Peter's and the rest of the disciples' mixed intentions or mixed, mixed motivation in the question. So here's what we got, and we're about to dive into this. Um, from Matthew 19, verse 28, all the way to 2016, we've got two halves of Jesus' answer. The affirmation in verse 28 and 29, and the lesson all the way throughout the rest of this passage. So let's look at the affirmation. Look at verse 28 and 29, the affirmation. And Jesus, uh, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So let's think about that response for just a minute. First thing I want you to recognize, Jesus says, in the new world. Man, that's a cool phrase right there. In the new world. That word, that word is literally regeneration. So there's a regeneration of an individual soul, and there's a regeneration of the whole world. A regenesis. There's a new creation. There's a new beginning. So Peter's question is, what then will we have? And Jesus answers by pointing him to the new world. There's a new world coming. There's a new creation coming. That time coming when all things are made right. 
A new heavens, a new earth. Christ sitting on his throne. Righteousness reigns supreme. All sin and evil is done away with forever. The glory of God fills the earth as waters cover the sea. That's the new, the new thing, the new world that's coming. Peter spoke about this. You don't have to flip there. But listen to this. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are, th- are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for what? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the whole world is going to have a regeneration. It's going to have a new birth. Jesus, what will we have? We've left off life. What will we have? Look to the new world. Look to the regeneration. And then he continues, Jesus says, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. The new world, what do you mean? I mean when the Son of Man, so he's referencing himself as the Son of Man. When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. That is a reference to Daniel chapter 7. Where Jesus is referred to in that prophecy as the Son of Man. I want to read this to you. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Listen to this. It's already been talking about the ancient of days and a judgment that's coming from the ancient of days. And then look what it says happens in verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's where Jesus gets that phrase from. There came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, from the ancient of days to the son of man, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Everlasting kingdom, worldwide kingdom. Jesus points his disciples' attention to the new beginning, the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, reigns as king, king forever. And then he says this to the twelve. So imagine him looking at the twelve. He's answering Peter's question. He's looking at the 12 and he says, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 thrones, judging or ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, there's some symbolic language in that about possessing a kingdom, sitting on 12 thrones, judging, ruling over Israel. 
There's some language there. There's some symbolic language. I say that because that also is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7. So let me read this to you. Daniel chapter 7. You got the Son of Man sitting on his throne, having dominion and power and glory. All nations, a forever kingdom. There he is. And verse 18 says this. But the saints of the Most High. The disciples, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Now that's repeated three times in Daniel chapter 7. So here's this symbolic language pointing back to Daniel 7. What do you get? Jesus, what are we going to get? What do do we get? We've left all and fought you. What are we going to get? Look at the regeneration. Look at the new world. Jesus sitting on his throne, ruling his king. And what are you going to get? You're going to come into possession of the kingdom. And it seems like here there's some sort of special high standing role. Even for these 12, for these apostles. Now he says here, keep going. It says, and everyone... Think about this response. And everyone who is left, and it mentions possessions and family. Everyone who is left is possessions and family. Now, I don't want you to miss this this transition. So in other words, what are we going to get? And he tells the 12, you're going to possess the kingdom. But then he turns the corner and he says, but everyone. Who leaves all and follows me. But all people. Don't miss that transition. Twelve. You're going to possess a kingdom. But listen. But everyone. Who leaves everything. And so he begins to say something about. Not just the twelve. But all of those that would follow him. So kind of store that away. That's important. Not just the twelve. But all those who would follow him. Now this, this says here that they would, lo- they would leave Everyone who would leave possessions and family for the name of Jesus will receive a hundredfold and eternal life. Now, why would somebody need to leave possessions and family to follow Christ? And I want to encourage you just to remember this, that that's normal Christianity. Throughout history, and even in our world today, that is normal Christianity. Normally following Jesus has meant rejection of friends and family and loss of property, maybe even loss of your life. That's normal Christianity. You say, man, I got saved and my family was all on board. Man, praise God for that, but that ain't normal. Throughout Christian history and even in our world today, to follow Christ is rejection from your family. Maybe you lose your life. Maybe you lose your possessions. Persecution rains down. That's normal Christianity. In the scriptures and throughout our world. And yet, what do Christians do? Remember, we've referenced this so many times. Matthew 13, verse 44. Christians are those that find that treasure in the field. And they're so enamored by the treasure in the field that they joyfully go sell everything else to buy that field, get that treasure. They're willing to lose it all. Now, it says here, what do they receive? It says they receive a hundredfold. You see that there in our passage? They'll receive a hundredfold. Now that means an abundance. That's a word that means a lot. You're going to receive an abundance. You're going to receive a hundredfold. The the, uh, parallel passage in Luke 18, it it says that Christians will receive many times more 
Many times more. It doesn't say a hundredfold. It says they'll, they'll receive many times more than anything they ever lost. You think about how much we value possessions and land and houses. And even more so how much we value family Brothers and sisters and mothers and children, how much we value these things. And Jesus says, it'll be a hundredfold. What you receive is so much more than even what you lost. It'll be more valuable what you receive than anything you ever lost. And not only a hundredfold, he says, and you'll inherit right there in the passage, you'll inherit eternal life. You'll inherit eternal life. So instead of what we deserve, which is eternal death, what we, what we have earned is the wrath of God poured out for all of eternity in hell, eternal death. We've earned that. And yet instead, those that leave all to follow Christ, they have eternal life, which is not just the length of your life and that it goes on forever, but it's the quality of life. I know you've heard me say that before. That you are dead, but you've been given the life of God flowing through your spiritual veins. And that's been given to you for all eternity. So this is a beautiful reward, right? What will we receive? You're going to possess the kingdom. Abundantly more than you could ever imagine. An eternal life. The life of God in you. Forever. This is what you're going to have. And then verse 30 says, but... But, and here comes our transition, but many who are first will be last and the last first. So that brings us to the second part of Jesus' answer, okay? So think about this. From 19 verse 30, the last will be first and the first last. And then he says in 20 verse 1, for, so he's going to explain that with this for, the kingdom of of heaven is like, and he gives a parable. And then look at the end of the parable, verse 16. The very end of the parable says, So the last will be first, and the first last. So in 1930, the last will be first, first last. 2016, the last will be first, the first last. And in between, we have this parable. So this is the lesson. There's something about this parable that helps us understand what Jesus means when he says, But, here's what you're going to receive, but... The first will be last and the last first. And something about this parable helps us get what he means by that. And so we, feel, we should feel a warning here. The disciples should have felt a warning here, a lesson here. And so let's read it, and then we'll seek to understand what's here. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Try to understand this parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And, he's, and, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will, give, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour he did the same and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing and he said to them why do you stand here idle all day they said to him because no one has hired us he said to them you go into the vineyard too 
And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those, who, and, and when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when, those, now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. I just try to grasp the plain sense of this parable. He, say, he starts it off by saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. Because the way, the, the way things are on earth is not the way they are in the kingdom of heaven. We need to understand there's a difference here. So he's going to give a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like, and what do we see in this parable? You've got a landowner who's got, he's got this land that needs to be worked, this vineyard that needs to be worked. And he's going to go to the marketplace and hire some day laborers. These guys will come work for a day and get paid for a day's labor. And it says he goes early in the morning. So he goes at about 6 a.m. About 6 a.m. He goes, he hires a crew. And he agrees with this crew for a denarius for a 12-hour day shift. Right? He agrees with them for a denarius, which is generous. That's what a specialized worker would have got during the day. So this is generous even for these guys to agree with them for a denarius for a day, a day of work. But he agrees with them. Now at about 9 a.m., he goes, so three hours later, about 9 a.m., he goes out and he hires some more men. Now, he does not agree with these men for a denarius, but what he says is just go out to the vineyard and whatever's right, I'll give you. So now he's got another crew that goes out at 9 a.m. And then at noon and at 3 p.m., he does the exact same thing. He goes and grabs some more laborers, sends some more crews out. Now, here's the thing. By the time you get to about 3 p.m., this is getting kind of, this is, this is, if you're understanding the story right, it's getting kind of silly. Like, man, they're just going to work just a little bit at the end of the day and get paid measly. Nothing. 3 p.m., you're, you're, you're sending out another crew. But you think that's silly. You think that's ridiculous. Then it says, super ridiculous. And it's on purpose that it, it's on purpose that it seems ridiculous here. But he goes out at 5 p.m. and he hires one more batch of laborers. And they're going to come work less than an hour. So here's these guys, been, they've been enduring this 12-hour work shift, and it says in the scorching heat of the day, and you got these guys that come in at the end and just work about an hour in the cool of the day, and that's all they do. Seems ridiculous. What are these guys going to get paid? And then it comes time to pay the laborers. The evening comes. And the landowner tells his foreman, hey, I want you to pay these guys. Start with the last, which is already irritating, right? You've been out there for 12 hours. You should be first to be paid. No. Start with the last. 
So he starts with the last, and you, and you imagine, what is the listener of the parable expecting? They're expecting this guy to get paid, you know, a twelfth, maybe, of what the first guys are getting paid, right? That it would kind of, it would be a tiered approach. You know, they're paid a little, a little more, a little more, a little more, a little more, until you get to the guys that worked all day long, and then they'll get paid their denarius. That's what you're expecting here. And instead... The guy that shows up at the very end and works one means of the hour in the cool of the day, he gets paid the denarius. He gets this generosity poured out on him. And what do you think the first crew is thinking? Man, we're about to get paid. If that guy got paid a denarius, we're about to get paid. And instead what happens is that you come to the first crew and everybody gets a denarius. Everybody's paid the same all the way down to this first crew. And what's the complaint that they bring to the landowner? What's the complaint they bring? This isn't right. You've made them equal to us. That's an interesting phrase. Not you made us equal to them, but you made them equal to us. We were first. We were superior. And you made them equal to us. And then how does the landowner answer in verse 13 through 15, the landowner, first he says, friend, I've done you no wrong. No injustice has gone down here. I, agree with you, I agreed with you for a denarius, and that's what you got. There's no injustice here. You've been taken care of generously. And then he says, do you begrudge my generosity? I'm sovereign over what I give out, right? I'm sovereign. It's my own money. I give it as I please, right? That's what he says. And he says, but do you begrudge my generosity? I'm pouring out generosity on this man. Does that make you angry? That's our parable. You understand it? Let's talk about the lesson of this parable, okay? What's being communicated here? What's the lesson of this parable? Jesus is setting up in this parable a beautiful tension between two things. And don't miss this. He's setting up a beautiful tension between two things. When you read this parable, you have to go in one of two directions. Which direction will you go? You have to go in one of two directions. Either you're frustrated at the lack of fairness here. People shouldn't get what they didn't earn. And those first guys, they ought to get what they earn, something better than these other guys. They should get what they earn. So you either read it and you go in the direction of frustrated. This isn't right. Or, second way you can go, man, you're just amazed at the grace of this landowner. <laughs> this guy comes straggling in at the end. He doesn't do squat. He doesn't do squat to earn anything. And you just poured it out on him. Just generosity. So which way will you go? Frustrated because where's that merit-based thing? Where's it at? Or man, look at the grace. You're going to go one of two directions. Now, that tension that Jesus creates, it's on purpose. And think about this. Your emotions might go one way or the other depending on how you view yourself. Depending on how you view yourself. Do you view yourself as the hard worker that earned his keep? 
And if you do, this thing frustrates you. Or do you view yourself as this, <laughs> this 11th hour, this, this dopey 11th hour guy that comes in doing nothing in the cool of the day? He didn't earn what he got. Do you view yourself there? If you view yourself there, you won't be frustrated, man. You'll be, this is glorious. You'll see this parable is something glorious. When I was uh, studying this passage, I came across another preacher that gave, he gave another parable. And the parable that he gave, is kind of his own parable, was this parable of, uh, imagine a classroom, right? We've all been in some kind of school classroom. Okay, you're in this classroom, and in every classroom, there's different kinds of students. You got good students, and you got bad students. You got those who study hard and those that don't. Those that show up on time and stay late, and those that show up late or don't show up at all and leave early, whatever. You got good students, and you got bad students. And it's reflected in the grades, right? So imagine you're in this classroom, you got good students, you got bad students, and one day, the final grades are going to be posted. And they're posted up on the door of the classroom, and you're walking up to see what the, you know, you're looking at all the different people in the classroom. You're looking at the final grade, and you get there, and everybody's got an A. There's good students, there's bad students, but everybody in there has an A. And, and what this preacher did is he started asking the congregation, how would that make you feel? And of course, nobody answered. And he said, no, seriously, you can answer. How did that make you feel? And nobody answered. And so he got real animated. How does that make you feel? And somebody in the crowd said, well, it depends on which group you're in. <laughs> and it was funny because the preacher wasn't expecting that. <laughs> but isn't that so true? If you think you're the one that deserve, I worked hard. I deserve the A here. And you walk up to it and you go, man, that's frustrating. Everybody's got an A. I worked hard for this. But if you, do, if you view yourself as I have failed miserably. You walk up and you see that list and you go, yes. I have an A. So it does. It depends on what group you're in. I want you to think about that. What group do you think that you're in? As you think about your life, as you think about your life, what group are you in? Are you in the group that, uh, man, you worked hard for your A and you deserve that A. Or if you put it into the parable, man, you work 12-hour shift. You deserve that denarius. Do you put yourself in that group? You earned it. That merit-based group. Or, and if you do, that, this is frustrating to you. Or do you put yourself in that group? Man, I have failed. I don't deserve an A. I have failed miserably in my life. In fact, I'm that 11th hour worker, showed up late, showed up at the last minute, worked in the cool of the day, didn't do anything to earn anything from this landowner. And if you put yourself there, man, the grace, the grace in this parable will just be glorious to you. Where do you put yourself? Are you in the spiritual pride of, I deserve an A? I'm the hard worker. I deserve the Daenerys. Or, 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 that's spiritual pride. Or do you have this humility, which is just rightly understanding yourself. You deserve nothing. Nothing good. You deserve nothing but wrath and judgment from God. So here's what I'm saying. That tension is created on purpose. And so the lesson of the parable is this. God deals with his people on the basis of grace 
not merit. That's what Jesus is teaching through the parable. He deals with his people on the basis of grace, not merit. One commentary said it like this. All human merit shrivels before his burning, self-giving love. Grace, amazing grace, is the burden of this story. Charles Spurgeon, he said it like this. I thought it was good. He said, the kingdom of heaven is all of grace. And so is the service connected with it. Let this be remembered in the exposition of this parable. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. Now we see that highlighted in the landowner's words, don't we? Just glance back at it one more time. Verse 14. He tells the guy, take what belongs to you and go. Listen to this language of grace. The grace of God toward his people. He says, I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That's sovereign grace. Or do you begrudge my generosity? What do we see in this parable? We saw a landowner pouring out generosity on the undeserving. That's grace. God's goodness poured out. God's generosity poured out on the undeserving. I want to move on to some application. But real quick, let me mention this because I think the contrast is helpful. There was another uh, really popular parable that rabbi, it's not in the Bible, Jesus didn't tell it, but a really popular parable that rabbis at this, around this time period uh, used to tell. And, uh, and the parable was so similar. It, it, it was something, let me try to summarize it, something like this. Uh, uh, a landowner, similar, gets a group of laborers, hires a group of laborers, and there's this one really skilled laborer in the group. He works for about two hours, and then he just walks around with the boss all day. He walks around talking to the boss all day about his skills and things. And when it comes pay time, everybody's paid the same. Grumbling begins to happen. Man, the Pharisees would have loved this parable. The grumbling starts happening, and the landowner, you know, they're saying, how can this guy get paid like we do? He just walked around with you for uh, the whole time. Only worked for two hours. And the answer from the landowner was, he's skilled. He got more work done in two hours than you got done all day. Now think about the teaching of that parable. Why is everybody getting, why is he getting paid like that? He's skilled. He earned it. Now contrast that. That is not like Jesus' parable. Jesus' parable is, he did, why is he getting paid the same? Because I'm generous. My grace is why he's getting paid like this. It's just a, it's a contrast. What are you supposed to see in this passage, in this parable? God's generosity towards the undeserving. God's grace. Okay, application. Let's work through some application of this parable. And really, I just want to take it in sort of two ways. Application towards the disciples, like in, like what they should have, the way they should have heard it. Okay? And then application for us, for Grace Community Church, uh, which is not going to be totally different, but... But let's take it like that. So to his disciples. So again, remember, what was the disciples' problem? So all surrounding this parable, all surrounding this scenario, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, what, what was the disciples' problem? They're jockeying for position, for recognition, 
for superiority. And all of it's rooted in spiritual pride. They think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. Therefore, they think they can earn it. They got this merit-based mindset. This pride that makes you think, I actually can earn some kind of position here. And be better than my brother. They're seeking to be first. And Jesus begins and ends a parable that says, Now you know the first to be last, right? They're seeking to be first. You know the first to be last and the last... First, and I want you to think about how this parable should have helped them. I don't know how much it took, because they're going to make this mistake here in just a minute, as we keep coming through chapter 20. But how should, it, how should this parable have affected these, these 12, these disciples? They should have thought, oh no, oh no. Here we are jockeying for position, superiority. We want to be first. Here we are doing that. Prideful enough to think we can earn this position. Here we are. We seem a lot like that first group of workers. Grumbling. Because, why are they grumbling? You made them equal to us. That's the phrase there. You made them equal to us. And what should have happened is they saw the grace of God in this parable. Is man, God deals in grace. We are all dependent on grace. We are all undeserving recipients of grace. And that puts us all on the same level. Quit jockeying for position. It puts us all on the same plane. We all have the same need. We're all recipients of grace. Anything I have good is only from Him. And so they stopped striving for recognition. That's how it should have affected them. Okay, Grace Community Church, let's apply it to ourselves. What's something that will shipwreck Grace Community Church? What's something that will absolutely shipwreck this church? Is spiritual pride. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before shipwreck, destruction. Pride goes before destruction. Spiritual pride will shipwreck this church. I want us to hear this warning. This is a warning, you know, these old guys you know, from way back can say things way more beautiful than I can. So I want you to hear this warning from Jonathan Edwards about spiritual pride. He says, The first and the worst cause of errors that prevail in such a state of things and he's talking about such a state of things. He's talking about people that are zealous for God. I mean, look across this room. People that are zealous for God. People that want to obey Him, want to walk with Him. The first and worst cause of errors in that situation is spiritual pride. Spiritual pride is the main door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of religion. Spiritual pride is the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment. Spiritual pride is the main handle by which the devil has hold of religious persons. It's the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces to clog and hinder a work of God. This cause of error is the main spring or at least the main support of all the rest, till this disease, this spiritual pride disease, until this disease is cured, medicines are in vain applied to heal other diseases. 
Pride goes before destruction, says Proverbs, and I believe those warnings are right from Jonathan Edwards. So the question comes to us, so what will destroy this church? What will destroy your soul? Spiritual pride. Well, how do we kill it? How do we stop it? How do we kill spiritual pride in our midst? Well, what Jesus is dealing with spiritual pride in the disciples, what does he do? He magnifies the grace of God. Something about the, magnif- the, the uh, exalting, the magnification of the grace of God is a spiritual pride killer. When the grace of God is magnified in your heart, you know it, you love it, you live by it, it'll work as a pride killer in your life. So I want us to think about that for a minute. So we, we need to examine our hearts. Do, do you have... Uh, spiritual pride in your heart that needs to be dealt with? Is there something in you pursuing prominence, chasing after recognition, desiring to be first, desiring to be seen? Test yourself. Examine yourself. Is there spiritual pride there? We need to be warned about this. And as we examine, we need to recommit ourselves to an obsession with the grace of God. A phrase I heard that I loved is we need to commit to being humbled by grace. I love that phrase. Humbled by grace. Now how does that work? Think about it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Such a good verse. Listen to it. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, Why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Do you get how that works? You see this revelation that, man, I'm just a recipient of grace. It kills boasting. What do you have you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? I'm just a recipient of grace. That's all I am. And if you realize that, you feel that deep in your bones, it kills boasting. It kills pride. Now think about how that works. How how all-encompassing is the grace of God? Answer the question. Just really try to answer the question. Brothers and sisters, what do you have that you didn't receive? Answer the question, right? Uh, I know some sound doctrine. I got got my ducks in a row on some sound doctrine. Why? Because you're so smart? Or is that a gift from God that you receive? That if you understand anything rightly about God, if you understand anything rightly in His Word, whether it's the gospel of your salvation or some other truth, some other other truth in the Bible, anything you grasp is because God has helped you. You receive that from Him. You're just a recipient of grace. What about your disciplines? You got a good prayer life? You read the Bible every day, man, praise God for that. Why, though? Just puff your chest out, you're just a diligent man. Or do you read your Bible every day and feel that thirst for His Word because God has granted that to you? What do you have you didn't receive? Your ministry was fruitful? One of your children got saved? What do you pat yourself on the back? Man, I'm a good parent. 
No. What do you have? You, you, what do you, it's all in, the grace of God is all encompassing. From your salvation to your, your sanctification, your ministry, everything. It's all by grace. There's nothing that you have good that you didn't receive as a gift from God. Now, that, doesn't that humble you? How can someone that feels the weight of that look at their brother and sister in pride? I've won up them. I'm first. I'm better. Man, it's just a gift from God. Be humbled by grace. Be humbled by this parable. We, we like to put ourselves in that first group. Now you read it and you know that that's not the right group, so you don't think like that. But the reality is, if I took another parable somewhere else, do you like to put yourself in that first group? Man, I'm the, I'm the one that worked that 12-hour shift in the scorching heat and earned my denarius. But you're not. I'm not. We are that dopey 11th hour guy. Didn't do anything to deserve it. Be humbled by this parable. And be humbled by this. I heard, and last thing I want to mention here. I heard one person as he was, um, uh, or one, I read one commentary as he was uh, expositing this text. It called the gospel the great leveler. The gospel is the great leveler is what it said. I think that might have been Spurgeon. It's one of the commentaries. And you think about that for a minute. We see that in our parable, right? This reward is leveled out for each laborer. Because God deals in grace, not merit. Not by merit. So the reward's leveled out. A denarius for them all. Not dependent on the work they did. Okay? So think about that with me for a minute. The gospel is the great leveler. It puts us all on the same level and therefore levels our spiritual pride. It's the great leveler. According to the gospel, all of us, according to the gospel, all of us are on the same level as it relates to our need before God. All of us, wretched sinners, deserve God's wrath, deserve destruction, eternal fire. All of us are in that place, same level. According to the gospel, all of us are on the same level as it relates to this, uh, this need of the grace of God. We need Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners. We need his death on that cross. If he doesn't die for us, we take our own punishment and go to hell. We need him. Every one of us. And what about reward? What about reward? I want you to just think about that in closing. Who in this room, all across this room, who in this room is going to get the reward of Matthew 19, verse 29? Who in this room is going to come into possession of the kingdom and be granted eternal life, the life of God flowing through your spiritual veins? Who, who, else, who in this room is going to uh, receive a hundredfold more valuable than you could ever lose. Who in this room? In, this, in the scripture here told us, everyone who has left all and followed Christ. Everyone in Christ is going to receive it. Ephesians chapter 1 mentions every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every single child of God 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, adoption, chosen, Holy Spirit. Revelation says we're going to see him face to face. Every single one of his children, every single one who has left all to follow Christ. Now somebody says, wait a minute. That don't seem right. Greg Ballard's over here. Man's a pastor in a local church. He's, he's served the Lord for years. He's, he's, uh, he's been helpful in people's lives and strengthened souls and won lost souls. Look, look, at, look at his life. And then you know, we got a, a, a little girl, 11-year-old girl getting baptized today. Now surely, this reward is not the same. Look what that man has done. She hasn't had time to serve the Lord like this, to preach the gospel like this. And, and, and what is the great leveler? The great leveler, what does it do? Eternal life, possess the kingdom. Or to flip it around. And sorry to pick on Greg, but that man's, I mean, you know, that man lived a big, Greg, Greg Ballard lived a big portion of his life as a drunkard. Wasted so much. Now you could, what about that guy that saved his six years old, faithfully served God, was fruitful in ministry all the way up to he was 85, 90 years old and died and went to be with the Lord. They can't get the same reward, right? And here comes this glorious gospel that, that levels things out and eternal life poured out. Possessing the kingdom. From the thief on the cross to John the Apostle. And that's something that should humble us. It should humble us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and for letting us meditate in it together. God, I pray that you would help us to be fully aware of your grace. And of, of the, the place that your grace has in our lives, Lord. God, help us to be full of this realization, God. And, and, and love it, Lord, that we don't have anything good that we haven't received as grace from you. And God, I pray that your grace and a revelation of that, Lord, would, would just destroy spiritual pride in our midst. God, please make us a humble people. God, I pray that you would protect us from what... What we see in these, these men that we're just reading about, Lord, of this trying to be first and trying to be recognized and the spiritual pride. God, please protect us from it. And Lord, I pray that you would give us sensitive consciences, Lord, that when we see that in our hearts, that we would be quick to, to attack it, to kill it with grace. God, please make us a humble people that love your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.